So flip all the way over to Romans 6. And uh, that, that was an easy Old Testament passage to choose. The, the passage in Romans basically says, if you are free in Christ, we're not to return to slavery. And uh, that's a di- direct application to the Christian from the Old Testament scriptures where the people of Israel said, we want to go back. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 12, down to the end of the chapter, reads this way. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have become set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I've had some controversies as a pastor, but I've never had anybody pick up stones to stone me. Lord willing, we don't come to that. But there is a cost to declaring the word of God faithfully. There's a cost to believing it and standing up for it, especially in days where we would rather listen to the bad report of faithless men than the report of truth from faithful men. So as we get into this passage, I, I want to ask, and this is a very rhetorical question. Have you noticed, I know that you have, but it's to get your thoughts moving. Have you noticed how much more divisive politics have become? Okay, this, this last maybe six years has, is just that the heat has been cranked up. And not only politics, but our common vision in our culture, Canada, U.S. in particular, Our vision of law, justice, economics, and education have all become a stage or a battleground for the direction of our culture. Not just about the immediate context, but it's about the direction of culture. Meaning, where are we going and how are we going to get there? That has really become cleaved in two in a dramatic way. The reason is because as a community, whether or not you went to church, we used to largely share common ideas of what life was about and what the meaning and direction of life were. 
So whether or not you went to church, maybe 30 years ago, you still shared a common vision for life with your neighbors, or at least you submitted to a Christian one publicly. Well, that's gone. That's being set aside now in, in, in the public view. We don't have this anymore. Now, this passage deals with that in an indirect way, but it deals more directly with the direction of your life. Because the direction of culture is the cumulative direction of a bunch of individuals. And the struggle for the direction of culture begins with the struggle for direction of the individual, of the man and the woman and their child. And there are only two directions. There are not a, a plurality and a wide variety of different ways that a society can go. The Bible says there are only two. There are only two directions that a culture or an individual can move toward. And so as I outline this, uh, 12 to 14, <clears throat> we have a command to throw out the old master. Okay, the people of Israel there, they wanted to overthrow uh, Moses and Aaron. But the command of the Christian is you need to overthrow the bad ruler and let the good ruler reign. The next part, 15 to 19, we see that there are only two paths. There are only two directions. We have Egypt and Canaan. There are only two directions. You're either going toward Egypt or you are going toward Canaan. You cannot stay in the desert forever. There's no fruit or water there. Finally, verses 20 to 23, it's a promise that you will get where you are going. <laughs> you will get to where you are going. So the direction that you're traveling will bring you to one of two destinations. Paul lays that out for us. So jumping back, and you know, the, the headings are a little different in the ESV than in the uh, New American Standard that I usually study out of. So it looks like we're picking up verses from last week, um, but the New American Standard translators didn't think so. They thought this belonged to this passage this week. It doesn't start at 15, it starts at 12. Again, Paul didn't write in uh, subject headings when he wrote out the letters. They were just a, a large letter. And so translators put in verses and chapter markings um, in, in order to help preachers, help their congregations find where it was or, or whatever it is. Um, but really, it's where the theme comes together that we that we sort of break off sermons. And so our first exhortation here is to throw out or throw off the old master. Uh, Paul says in verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. So there is a sovereign. Every human being, every culture has a sovereign to which it answers. A king or somebody who's in charge who's running the show. Ultimately, somebody is running the show. Paul says, if you are in Christ, you are to not let sin reign in your mortal body. Your old master must be overthrown. Again, that, that, and just to, to summarize this, the title of the message this morning is Obedient from the Heart, Free in the Body. Obedient from the heart, free in the body. So our body is tied to the destiny and, and the direction of our heart. Bodies participate, right? Our bodies go everywhere we do. We can't leave one and separate the other. So Paul says, throw off the old master. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. That means your hands and your feet. Sin was the master. Ephesians um, chapter 1, we've seen before. Chapter 2 says, um, we were all slaves to the prince of the power of the air. If you are not in Christ, you are a slave to Satan. 
It is just that simple. And some of the old Puritans, when they used to baptize people, they used to ask, do you renounce Satan in all his ways? Are you casting off your allegiance to Satan? When you come to Christ, you must renounce your old allegiance. And so we've talked a lot about depravity and and how sinful human beings are. And then we come to this passage where Paul says, we need to throw off sin. And you think, well, how does that square with the doctrine of you know, depravity or the doctrine of um, our powerlessness. If you read uh, Romans 1 21, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The lights went out. So how do we go from the lights are out and, and we're hopelessly dark to a command that says, okay, now you need to throw off sin. What happened in the middle there? Probably the best summary is in what we looked at last week in verse 8 in chapter 6. It says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So if we have died with Christ, we have come back to life. Life has been breathed into us and and we can suddenly take action. We wake up and our bodies join in the fight. That's how Paul can say, you now need to throw off sin without contradicting himself. Because something supernatural happened where we woke up. We woke up to our slavery. Our eyes were open to the darkness that we once walked in. And so you have come to life by God's glorious might, and we are now commanded to live accordingly. God's sovereign action, we saw last week in the last few weeks, salvation is all of God. In Adam we died, but in Christ we live. We are alive because of God's sovereign action in our life. We're going to look at that a little bit more in the coming months when we get to chapters 9 through 11. But God's sovereign action always enables a personal response. God's sovereign action always enables in us some personal and subjective response. These two things are not intention. God's sovereignty and man's so-called free will, they are not intention in Scripture. Uh, and and I, I, I really shy away from using that word tension um, because we can find so-called tensions, you know, all through scriptures. But I don't think the tension is in the scripture. I think the tension is in our hearts. Mm. We, we fail to acknowledge God's vast wisdom and say, oh, there's a tension here. In God, it is perfectly harmonious. God sovereignly saves you. And then you wake up and come to life and then you live. It's just like when God, when Christ healed the leper, he said, pick up your mat and walk. He couldn't give that command to a cripple. But on the basis of the authority of his healing power, he said, no, you get up and roll up your mat. And in some cases, he said, go to the temple, present yourselves to the priests. There's always some response to God's healing in our lives. So Paul says, overthrow your old master. Christ has defeated Satan in principle. And you must take up God's strength to defeat him in practice. Hear that one more time. Christ defeated Satan in principle and spiritually. He said, when I'm, when I'm raised up, the ruler of this earth will be cast out. He bound and defeated Satan. But it remains for you to take up the armor and take up the fight and cast him out. Cast him out for you have the power to do so. But the battle is first within. It says, do not let, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body. Have you ever met a Christian who, they, they come to Christ, and they immediately want, want to tear down every evil institution. They, they 
want to go overthrow, you know, every evil action. And the battle begins first inside of us. We are first shaped and prepared and readied for the gospel battle that we are called to. So Satan is defeated in principle and we take up God's strength to defeat him in practice. He says, do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body. First, take care of your body. First, take care of what's going on in your life. First, take care of who you are on the inside and in private. And the the ESV here says to make you obey its passions. The New American Center says to make you obey its lusts. The things that your body craves that are defiling. The lusts of the body. Now, there's all kinds of categories. You could talk about physical, uh, sexual lust. That's a very real kind of lust. You have a lust for uh, comfort and distraction and ease and luxury. You could have a lust for selfish power. You could have a, a, a lust for even anger. Some people indulge in anger as, a, as almost a cathartic lust. All of these lusts are the things, they're the impulses that come from within that we either obey or we reject. James chapter one really helps us with this. Speaking of lust, a person who would sin, it says, don't turn to God and say, you have tempted me because God cannot be tempted by sin. But each one is tempted. Listen to this. When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, our lust is like a little sail that goes up in our hearts and then the wind blows and we start following it. We are carried away and enticed by our own lust. And then when lust has conceived, what does it do? It, it gives birth to sin. And, and sin here is talking about the action of sin. We know that lust in the heart is a sinful matter that needs to be repented of. But James is saying when it conceives, in other words, when you, when you nurture it, it gives birth to sin. Something that you do that affects somebody else, it affects you. You sin against the Lord in practice. David lusted after Bathsheba on the roof. And his lust was not crucified in that moment. And it, it, he was carried away by it. And it conceived and it gave birth to what? The sin of adultery. And then that sin begot more and more sin in David's life, right? Because he kept trying to hide his sin instead of repent of it. So he brought Uriah home. When that didn't work, he had Uriah sent to the front lines and killed. And so listen to this. And when, when it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is accomplished or when it runs its full course, course it brings forth what? Death. Sin's ultimate um, consequence is death. We saw that in David's life, as I just mentioned. When sin and lust are calling the shots, when temptation arises, so if sin is still in the driver's seat, if sin is still piloting the helicopter of your life, when temptation arises, you'll be like a city without walls. And I just want to read this proverb. I'm going to go to the Proverbs a few times this morning because um, there's a lot of practical wisdom in the Proverbs as to how to live out this reality. Proverbs 25, 28 reads, and I hope I've got the, the passage right. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What's the most important thing in an ancient city? It was its walls. It was the first line of defense in order to give time to protect the women and the children, to, to ready the battlements and the armaments. But if you are a person without self-control, if sin and lust are calling the shots, if you respond to every little craving in your body, when sinful temptation arises, there's not even a barrier to get over. 
it's, it's, it, you're like an, you're an open door. You're like a Walmart that the automatic doors just got stuck open overnight. You don't even have to break in. It's like leaving your car unlocked at night. A thief doesn't have to jimmy it open or break a window. They just take what they want to be plundered. That's the picture here of a person who has sinned, still calling the shots. So what do we do? Destroy the enemy within. Capture the direction of your body. He goes on to say, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Your body is an instrument one way or another. Your body is always accomplishing something. Unless you stay in bed all day, and even then you're still accomplishing some, some end. But if you do anything, your body is always doing something. The scriptures say, don't send your body off to sin's warehouse to be a tool for sin. It later says lawlessness multiplies when you present yourself to sin. Sin needs a body to work itself out, right? And this is why this whole idea of, you know, systematic sin, although in some realities it, it's possible, but systematic sin is only a product of individual sin. Sin needs a body to do its work. There's no such thing as a sinful soccer ball. There's no such thing as a sinful gun. There's no such thing as a sinful hot air balloon. It's what you do with it. Sin needs a person and a mind to carry out its ends. So don't use your body. Don't volunteer your body to sins and, and its purposes. So when it says, do not present your members as sin instruments, we need to ask ourselves, where do we present our bodies? Where do you go? What things do you do? What time do you turn on the TV or pull out your phone? Who are the people that you text and when and why? I'm just asking because those are the ways that we present our bodies to sin. We, we, can, we, we get on the train and we say, oh, I'm going to go over here where I can be used for a sinful purpose. Our bodies are either instruments that bring on more and more lawlessness into the world or what does he say? But instead, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So that's the great thing here. This is not all just about limiting your body and what your body wants and just controlling your body and restricting your body. And, oh, the, the body is a restless evil. No. He says the body can be used positively in the same way. The same way that you used to be an instrument for sin. Paul says you can do the same thing for God. Think about how much sin you accomplished when you were outside of Christ. He's saying the same amount of righteousness in God. Present yourself as members to God. I just want to go back to um, Proverbs one more time, Proverbs 7. Um, you should, uh, I'm just going to, there's a, a mute here. I need to mute. Oh. There we go. I want, to, I want to give you another picture of this idea of presenting your body as a member to sin, just to make this very, very visceral. Uh, Proverbs 7, 6 says, uh, at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice. You hear people watched out your window and just evaluated people's lives. I looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Are you a young man? Do you know a young man? Pass this proverb on to them. He was passing along the street near her corner. Who's that? Taking the road that ends at her house in the twilight. Oh, what time was he going? Oh, at twilight. In the evening, at the time of night and darkness. 
Again, what time are you doing the things that you do and why? And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. If you ever wanted an embodiment of uh, what the modern pornography industry has become, that's it. At every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. And now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. Oh, you're an important guy to me. I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning and delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and at full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him all at once. A New American Standard says, suddenly he follows her. Well, it's not so sudden. I think that's a bit of a play on words there. It's not so sudden. When you're wandering down the street at twilight, you're already in a bad spot. Again, as Christians, sometimes, you know, we think, well, we're in Christ. We have the power to, to resist sin. We go to places where it's the difference in the direction of the breeze as to whether or not we sin or not. We get so close to sin that if the wind changes directions, we flop right over. Because we've traveled down the road that leads to our house. We've gone at twilight. We've given sin all the opportunity. The only thing missing is us. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag that is caught fast. Have you ever felt like you're in control of your sin? Nope. The Bible says you're an ox on the way to slaughter. You're a stag that's caught fast. Kevin knows about trapping. The only thing left to do is to go out and, as he says, dispatch the animal. Till an arrow pierces its liver and as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. What does sin lead to death when sin can when lust conceives it gives birth to sin and sin when it runs its course leads to death i'm being very clear about the scriptures here because this is what's at stake sin is so serious and as christians we don't set aside that seriousness we don't we don't just play now in the playground of sin sin have you ever heard the saying sin um Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Sin is where lust meets opportunity. Sin is where your unchecked lust meets an opportunity to exercise. A lot of us think, well, I can hide my, my lust on the inside. I can keep it sacred here on the inside because no one knows. And I can delight in my inner sin. The problem is we go along thinking if I just keep control of it, no one will ever know. And I can enjoy this inner sin. But what happens when opportunity comes? You're not the one driving the bus. You're like a stag caught in a trap and like an ox going to the slaughter. And you're dead. You're dead. And so Paul says, heads up, don't let sin reign in your mortal body because it is dangerous and it's more powerful than you think. I love this other passage from James. Is this an exaggeration? Like, Tim, why are we being so intense here about sin? We're here to be lifted up. James says to the new covenant believers in verse three, or, or maybe you think, well, phew, I'm not, I'm not engaged in sexual sin, so this is not for me. Do you struggle with your tongue? Do you struggle with what you say? James three, starting in verse three says, 
If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large, they're driven by strong winds, but they are guided by a very small rudder. Whatever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How, how serious is the tongue? How serious is sin of the tongue? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. How serious is sin of the tongue? Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, whether it's your tongue, your hands, your feet, your legs. Don't put your body in an opportunity to engage in these things. Don't obey the things that call out. Yes, we still live with our bodies. Yes, we have temptation. I have temptation. I have cravings. I have things that pop up in my heart and mind that must be crucified to live for Christ. Now, again, this is not purely a negative exercise, but it says instead present yourself as instruments to God for righteousness. Well, how do we do that? Ephesians 5.10 says, learn what is pleasing to God. It's a learning exercise. Don't just, don't go around thinking your whole life is, is to resist sin. You resist sin for the purpose of being available for righteousness. You learn what is pleasing to God. Meditate on the scriptures. Meditate on, on, on sermons. Discuss it with your friends. What pleases the Lord? And I love this because, you know, I think a lot of us right now maybe just feel a little bit discouraged because we've tried before. I've, you're tried to throw off sin as a master and you failed. And you thought, I thought this would be the time. I thought this would be the time I could resist uh, that gossip circle. I thought this was the time I could, could resist that sexual sin. I thought this was the time I would have control over my anger. And I, and I blew it again. Listen to this blessing in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. This is not a command. This is a blessing. For you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you are not judged and condemned by the law. You are under God's grace. You are under his blessing. You are under the, the covenant of, of grace and you are filled with the spirit. You, it has been accomplished in you. And so if you're afraid, you need to, you need to embrace this promise right now. You need to embrace this blessing. It, it's a promise. It's an assurance. Sin will not be master over you. It's the same thing when, when Christ said to his followers, you shall be holy for I am holy. Again, that's not just a command. In other words, you must be holy because I'm holy. It's a blessing. It's a father saying to his children, you will become like me. Because you belong to me. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so at the same time, it's a command, but it's an assurance. It's an assurance that sin will not be master over you. You will be free. But you have to fight. You have to fight and you have to respond. So that's up to verse 14. Let's look at verse 15 to 19. There are two paths. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? We looked at that question uh, last week, but he repeats it here. He 
says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are uh, slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So do you see how Paul is just laying out two paths? He's saying there, there is no path for the Christian to be in Christ, but also uh, to be slave to sin. You are either going toward Egypt or you're going toward Canaan. He says one is obeying uh, your lust. The other is obeying God. One leads to death. One leads to righteousness. There are only two paths, covenant keeping or covenant breaking. One is driven by lust and sin and feelings. I mean, they, when, they, when those spies came back and, and, and said, it's impossible, their men are tall, their cities are fortified, we have no hope. Covenant breaking says, I, in my own wisdom, will do what I feel necessary to live. Covenant keeping says, God will keep his promise. He gave us this land. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's a promise of God. Covenant keeping trusts in the promises of God. And that's where the difference lies. One is the path of no resistance. There was no uh, battle to get back into Egypt at that point. I mean, Egypt would have, well, oh, here comes our million slaves. They're on their way back. There was no, you know, there was no passport to get back into Egypt. It was just walk back, get what you want, and get your leeks and garlic back. There was no leeks and garlic in the wilderness. There's no resistance to following sin's lust. It's the path of ease. We want and so we take. We want so we do. We want so we say. It's easy. The other path toward righteousness is being conformed by obedience. Now see here in verse 17, again, the praise, the assurance. If you think that this is a matter of, of your own self-control or your own self-discipline purely, Look at what God did sovereignly in verse 17. But thanks be to God that although you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart. Your hearts have been changed. This is what the new covenant's all about. Ezekiel 36 says, I will take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh, which is able to walk in my statutes. Your obedience comes from a place of who you are on the inside. It's not just a matter of conforming to a religious standard or joining a group and trying to look like them. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is getting a new heart in place of your old one. <clears throat> How do you know you have a new heart? Because you want to please God. You, you don't delight anymore in your sinful nature. You, you don't delight anymore in the deeds of wickedness. You no longer scheme like in Proverbs 1 to shed innocent blood. You no longer scheme for, for theft. You no longer scheme for dishonesty. We may still do those things from time to time, but we hate them. That's what the new heart is. The battle is the new heart engaging in warfare against the opportunities of the world. But in the gospel, our obedience comes from the heart. It comes from the heart. Now, again, that doesn't mean that our obedience uh, carries no specifics to it. Sometimes people, you know, they'll steer this towards subjective obedience, well, this is what God's showing me. And it, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's private to me and you, you can't criticize or scrutinize it. This is not what the new covenant is about. Look where this obedience comes from. Uh, 
you were you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Did you catch that? Christian obedience comes from the inscripturated teaching of the word of God. So again, righteousness and obedience is not a matter of deep philosophical ponderings, although the Christian faith has room for that. You don't have to go off into your room and lock yourself into a closet until you have an epiphany of what should happen in your life. Life is laid out for us in the scripture. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. This is why we're so uh, heavily emphasized teaching, because we want you to know how to please God, all of you. We want you to know what's in his word so that you will know what to do. And you can safely trust it and do it. You'll never go wrong obeying God. You'll never go wrong applying the scripture. You may do it imperfectly. You may not nail it out of the park. That's, the, that's life. That's me. But we know what the standard is. We know what the source is. It is the word of God. And we, we become obedient from the heart, which means we want to. Remember, the heart is, it's our motivation. It's our will. It's our desire. It's our intention. It's everything about who we are. It's how we choose what we do every single day. Paul says, praise God, he made our hearts obedient. He transformed us so fully that everything that we desire has become in line with God. Now, you say, whoa, 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 I don't feel that yet. I'm not all the way there yet. So has God failed to do it? Am I not a Christian because I'm not there yet? My desires are not fully all for God all the time. Has, has, what, what's gone missing here? This is the last portion of this passage, which is that you will get where you're going. So what direction are you traveling today? Today, in the Christian faith, in terms of our daily lives, it's more about where are you going today than where did you start going yesterday? Because everyone knows you can start a journey with an intention to go somewhere, and there are a million ways to get lost. There's a million ways to, to go wrong in your direction. And a lot of us have taken a lot of those wrong turns. But you know when you have your GPS on and you, and you turn somewhere off where the map was saying? It says recalculating. <clears throat> There's always a way back. There is always a way back. There's always a route you can take in the Christian life <clears throat> to return to obedience to God. So wherever you are this morning, wherever your friends are, that's the message of the gospel. Down in verse 20, he says, well, and, and again, just to summarize that portion, he says, you've been set free. You have become slaves of righteousness. And he says, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm using this analogy because it's not perfect, but it, it gets the message across that you were once slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to God. But the difference is God is not a slave driver the way Satan is. Our slavery to God is for our good and for his glory, as Kevin pointed out earlier. And so he says in, in verse 20, he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? So when you were a slave, when you were in Egypt, you know, you may look back and say, oh, wow, it was pretty good. Paul says, take a minute to reflect on the direction of your life when you were in sin. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the result of those things? 
while we have a few of those different lists throughout the scripture of what it looked like to follow the sin, the slavery of sin, it's chaos, it's deceit, it's guilt and shame and um, an alienation from God. Remember, what Egypt lacked most in Egypt, you know, you know what Israel lacked most in Egypt? It was communion with God. And when Moses first went to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go that they might worship me. It was communion with God. That's what we missed most when we were in sin. But he says, look at the fruit of what you were doing when you were a slave. The end of those things is death. When you were in your sin, you know, what hope did you have? Where were things going? Did you think it was going to end well? But then he also says, but, but look at what you have gained in Christ from obedience. Now that you have been set free, verse 22, you have become slaves of God. And the fruit that you get or the reward leads to sanctification. And its end is eternal life. So here's the, here are the two divergent paths. One leads to death. One leads to life. And you will get where you are going. And here's the road that you are on if you're in Christ. That road is called sanctification. That's another term I want you to, I want you to, to wrap your heart around, wrap your mind around, and, and delight in this. There are three stages to our life in Christ. The first is justification. Well, we could say the first is condemnation. We are first under condemnation of God. And the moment we become a Christian, the moment we confess Christ and put our trust in him, we are justified. That's justification. That's sort of stage two. <clears throat> We're justified, which means we are no longer uh, guilty before God. The second portion, which is where we are when we become a Christian is called sanctification. That's the road that we walk. And then finally, there's glorification, where we are, when Christ appears, we are glorified. We are immediately transformed. And whatever difference there is left in our life between where we are and where Christ is, is immediately eliminated. We become like him. First John says, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be glorified. And so Paul says, you need to reflect on that old path for a minute. Just reflect on that. And this is important as well for your children. Reflect on the fruit of sin. Reflect on the fruit of slavery. It's death. He says, look at all the things that you were getting and recognize that it was all death. It was all always going to be death. It might have felt glamorous at times. It might have felt free at times. But ultimately, it's always death. I, um, I say this to my, my kids all the time. Because even small sins that we think we can... Sneak those in. What is the end of, of sin? It's death. That lie is death. That little disobedience is death. It, it kills you. It kills you. And then, and now we are freed from sin and we are a new kind of slave. So now we are slaves to God to do what he does. And again, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. <clears throat> and this new kind of slavery has its own reward and its own destination. Sanctification is an important word because it's, it's especially important in the context of being called an instrument. The word sanctification appears many times in the Old Testament, and it was how people prepared something for worship. So you go into the temple and you would sanctify 
the incense burning device, or you would sanctify the tools that the priests would use in slaughtering the animal. You would sanctify the altar. You would literally prepare it for worship. You would prepare it for usefulness to God. And this idea of being an instrument is just that. We are like those temple instruments and implements. And in fact, the word instrument carries a military connotation here in the scriptures. You are like a sword or a spear or chainmail or a helmet, or you may be provisions for the front line. I don't know where you fit in to the battle, but you are an instrument in spiritual warfare, having been set aside and purified, pulled out of the rusty heap of trash and cleaned up and sharpened and put into use. It is to be, it is to be made useful to God. Again, Christianity is not about sitting back and meditating and, and living a life of perfect inner peace. It's about getting out onto the field and becoming an instrument for God, getting out onto the battleground and saying, purify me, make me useful both for worship and warfare. Slavery, this idea, takes us again back to this Old Testament passage where they had a desire to return to their own old slavery. Do you ever read that and think, why would they ever go back? But put yourself in their shoes. In Egypt, they were provided for. The labor was hard, but at least they knew where their next meal was coming from. And in, in the wilderness, it was like, we don't know what God's going to do. But he brought water from a rock. He brought bread from heaven. He brought quails in from every corner of the earth. He always provided, but it was this idea that in, in Egypt, they could see. They knew what it was about. Here's the, here's the reality. Is that freedom is uncomfortable. If you are in Christ and you're finding it an uncomfortable journey, that's good. Because freedom is uncomfortable. It places on us responsibility. It places upon us a new yoke and a new direction to conform our lives to. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the things that are cozy and comfy, but keep you useless to God. This benefit that's derived from slavery to God, it implies obedience. And again, maybe you haven't felt useful to God in a long time. I know that feeling. But here's the question. Maybe you aren't putting obedience to God first because it says that obedience leads to sanctification. Often we want the sanctification to happen first. We want to desire the right thing before we do it. The Bible actually says your obedience precedes your sanctification. You have become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification. So the things that are derived from obedience to God, they sanctify you and make you useful. Sometimes when we're living in sin, um, we're told, I've heard in some Christian circles, that our, our job is to cry out like a cripple from the bed of our sin. God, deliver me from this. And it sounds pious and it sounds godly, but the fact is that's how we get saved. We get saved calling up from the side of the road with broken legs. We, we can't do anything to be saved. God has to lift us out of our deadness. But when we are empowered, we are commanded to obey. That means whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with that is, that is returning your life to that slavery, you need to act upon you don't do it apart from God. You don't do it without his strength. You don't do it on your own. Don't hear me say that. But you need to act. You need to make it happen in your life by God's grace and by his strength and through the power of the new covenant blessing 
Do what is right from the word of God. And then let, let him work through that to clean you and prepare you for usefulness. And don't forget, your sanctification doesn't just prepare you for usefulness to God. It prepares you for eternal life. You ever think that God is getting us ready for the new heavens and the new earth? I, I hope it's not so jarring for me and for you when Christ comes back. Because if you are in Christ, you will be glorified. I hope it's less jarring than more jarring. I hope when we see Christ, we are nearer to his image than we are today and more closely aligned. Remember that obedience is how we were saved. In uh, Romans 5.19, it says, by one act of obedience, Christ made the many righteous. It's linked to obedience and Christ is, is our perfect obedience. And so just going to wrap up right here. Notice the threefold contrast, which summarizes this whole idea in verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death, which means death will pay you what you've earned. Sin will pay you what you've earned, excuse me. Sin will pay out exactly what its wages are, and it's death. But what's the contrast? What's the remedy? But there's a free gift. It's not wages. It's not the wages of righteousness. It's not the wages of faith. There's no earning in, in Christ, right? It's a free gift of God is eternal life. That's the contrast to death in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So friends, here's just a summary. Number one, overthrow the old master. You have the power to do that. You have the power in Christ. Christ is within you, and he has already overcome and conquered Satan. So if you have a, a, a lust and a slavery to sin in your heart, you can, through Christ, destroy it. Through the power of the resurrection of Christ. Don't offer your body in the arena of sin. Number two, Evaluate the binary reality. Evaluate the reality that if you're in between, you've either got Egypt or Canaan. Obedience and trust in God's promise is the way to Canaan, that he will bring us there and he will deliver our enemies into our hand. Or the other is to fall back into slavery and to go back where it's comfortable, where you're distracted, where you're coddled, where you have everything you need. There's no challenges to your faith. I'm not saying that slavery in Egypt was easy. Don't hear me say that. It's, it's the imagery that we're using. And then finally, pursue sanctification. This is your destiny. This is your birthright as a Christian. The image of Christ has been planted in you in the Holy Spirit. Pursue it in an active way. Pursue sanctification. And that starts where? With obedience. Make choices that prioritize obedience to God. And you know what? Obedience takes some work to figure out. It does. Sometimes you got to sit down in the Bible and say, what would obedience to God look like in this situation? It's not a textbook that has the answer on any given page with the index. But the Bible provides everything we need in wisdom and instruction to know how to be obedient to God. And obedience will not always feel comfortable. What did Christ say when he came to the cross? Father, if there's any other way, please reveal it to me. But, if, but obedience is the path to God, accomplishing God's will. And that's what we want when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We want his will. We want the way things are in heaven to be on earth. But that involves the obedience of average everyday Christians like you and me. That's why your sin is not private. Your sin is not just between you and God. You are multiplying lawlessness in the world. You are impeding the progress of the kingdom of God wherever you actively engage in sin. But the corollary is also true. You are contributing to and allowing the flourishing of the kingdom of God through obedience to him. And don't hear obedience in a, in a negative light. It's a joy to obey our loving father who gave his son for us. It's a joy to obey him. It's a delight. And so again, pursue sanctification with obedience. And then finally, meditate the, on the fact that eternal life is at the end of this path. You may be weary today. You may be discouraged. You may still feel like you're a slave to sin. But Paul makes two assurances. Number one, sin will have no dominion over you. And number two, he has made you obedient from the heart. Those are two promises if you're in Christ. Those are two assurances. Those are two blessings that are already yours. They already belong to you. So you don't have to make a pilgrimage. You don't have to whip your body. Trust in the promises of God. Don't grow weary because eternal life is coming. Christ will return one day and your work will be, your earthly work will be over. The battle with sin will be put to rest finally. Death will finally be slain. But this is how we live today. It's a challenge. So read the Proverbs. That's an exor- That's a simple exhortation. Read the Proverbs daily if you can. There's relationship wisdom. There's business wisdom. There's sexual wisdom. Um, there is uh, political wisdom. Figure out what's pleasing to God and, and begin to put it in practice and, and just see what God will do in your life. See how he will transform the things around you through obedience. You'll be delighted. And you'll rejoice. Though there will be setbacks, it will not be perfectly smooth. There will be setbacks. Um, But he has given us everything that we need in his word and through the Holy Spirit.